Today on Pens Exchange, the relevance of Adam Smith today. Welcome to Pens Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by Ria Pia Paganelli. She's a professor at Trinity University. She received her bachelor's degree in political science from the Universita Católica del Sacro Core and her PhD in economics from George Mason University. Her research interest focus on the history of economic thought particularly in the Scottish Enlightenment and its links with current behavioral economics, evolutionary biology, and neuroeconomics. Welcome, Maria. Thank you so much for having me here, Fernando. It's a great honor and great pleasure. Adam Smith is widely acknowledged as the father of economics, yet in his own time, he was mostly known for his moral and moral philosophy work. So what do we set to gain by directly reading him today? What things have modern economists failed to appreciate that might help push the boundaries of our discipline? Today, we will be joined by Maria Pia Paganelli, who will act as our guide into the work of Adam Smith. Maria, I want to start by asking a broad and maybe a bit blunt question of why current economists, social scientists, and lay people in general should read the classic tests rather than focus on the most recent developments in our disciplines. That's a good question, but I think it can be framed in a different way, um, because the way in which you frame the question is to see the classic text and contemporary, contemporary, contemporary liter literature as, uh, as substitutes, uh, but they can actually be complements, uh, meaning that you don't have to sacrifice one uh, for the other, but you can read them together. And I think that by complementing contemporary li literature with classic text, you can actually have um, uh, a better understanding of the results of contemporary li literature and a more rounded understanding of human beings. And now let me ask a different question, but similar. What do we gain from reading people in the Scottish Enlightenment that we do not get from reading people that wrote before it? Like, what is special about Adam Smith, David Hume, Francis Hutchinson that say it's not in late scholastics or even in Aristotle? Um, that's also another good question, um, but I, which I think can be seen as, uh, uh, or the literature can be seen as complement and not substitute. But in typical of the Scottish Alignment is a quest for scientific understanding. Um, so Hume wanted to found a science of men. Uh, so the men is, or people, human beings, are just another subject of nature to study in the same way as you study any other subjects of nature. Um, and you would do it like you study uh, the stars or the skies or plants or animals or rocks uh, by observation and hypothesis testing. And so you collect data. Uh, in the case of human uh, behavior, you collect data through history. 
and through travel journals as well as through observation and you formulate your hypotheses and you test them. And I think that that is a method that is very similar to uh, the method that we use today uh, as opposed to something that was more common, uh, say, in the scholastics, which were much more linked to revealed truth. Going back to the question of complementarity or substitution, I guess one thing that, at least for myself, gets very difficult about reading past scholars is especially dwelling into the subtleties in the writing, especially on how they intended to be read by the respective target audiences, which, of course, were not ourselves currently. So these subtleties nowadays may lead to misinterpretations in modern audiences. And for you, how important is context to understand the history of economic thought? How important is context to understand what Adam Smith wrote? Is it important, for example, to read about economic history of Scotland in the 16th, 17th, 18th century to understand what he wrote? I would say um, that context is both important and not important. Uh, so I would answer with a yes and no. Um, in the following way, uh, most of the language that we use today is the same as the language that was used in the 18th century, but not all. So even some words um, that uh, we understand in a certain way were not necessarily understood in the same way at that time. Um, and so I think a, a little bit of context to understand uh, particular words can help. Um, I'm just to give you an example. The word savage uh, today is not exactly a word that you want to use to refer to uh, people from Africa. But at that time, it was common to refer um, to some African tribes as savages. But that didn't have any necessarily any um, condemnation or any judgment of it. It was just a way to call um, hunter-gatherers. So today we use different words to refer to the same characteristics of societies um, at some words that would not be used any longer. Um, but you need to have a knowledge of the context in which it was used to see that when you read savage in an uh, uh, in, you know, 18th century text is not an offense, but is referring just to uh, a society that is basically a hunter-gatherer society. There are certain concepts that are the same and they're intuitive uh, without knowing any of the context. So if you think of the division of labor being the main source of wealth uh, and being limited by the extent of the market, uh, this is something that, like, regardless of whether you know Scotland or not, you can easily understand. And what Smith tells you that a porter is uh, not to be found in the highlands of Scotland, uh, but is more likely to be found in London. Again, the extent of the market is what makes a difference is quite intuitively. But when uh, when you study, for example, is uh, or when you read about his banking uh, situation and the banking laws that he suggests, then if you don't know the context, it becomes quite obscure because uh, today we are in a context of fiat money and central banks. And in Smith's time, there were no central banks and there was no fiat money. So it, in that sense, 
to know a little bit about uh, the historical context of the financial situation in Scotland will help you understand what's made the same. Amongst the best known controversies in the history of economic thought is this supposed tension between the Adam Smith that brought the world of nations and the Adam Smith that brought the theory of moral, moral sentiments. I may be biased here, but I will say the current consensus is, there no, is that there is no tension at all. However, the topic remains very controversial. So I, I, let me ask you, do you agree with that assessment? And secondly, more generally, how do you think Adam Smith thought about the relationship between markets and morals? How do each other affect? So I don't think that your views about the Adam Smith problem or the tensions between the two books that Adam Smith wrote uh, are actually biased. I think that they are correct. Um, I think it's very common today to dismiss the Adam Smith problem as a problem of the past. It was just like misreading of the text. Um, and, uh, and now I think it's very rare to find scholars that would see a tension between the two books. Um, you may have question on which book is more relevant, <laughs> but that's a different question. They, they still uh, uh, go hand in hand. And I think that the, the, the two books go hand in hand is very much related to their second part of your question, which I think is a more interesting part, which is the relationship between markets and morals. And, and when you read the two books together, then uh, you do see that the relationship is um, a relation that builds on itself in the sense that markets do develop morals and morals help markets. So it's a positive feedback between markets and morals. And what you observe is not necessarily a tension or a contradictions between markets and morals. You may have a change in morals due to the presence of markets. And so the set of values that emerge in market societies changes the values that were present before that were more appropriate for non-commercial societies. And so now you have, when you introduce um, uh, markets, when you have commercial society, you tend to see more trust, more cooperation, more friendship, more humanity, uh, more peaceful interaction with strangers, honesty, punctuality. Those are all um, values that uh, develop and are strengthened once you have a commercial society in place that substitute a set of values that were present before. Um, so rather than a tension between markets and morality, I would see a development of morals through markets. And this is something that you can also see in the current literature. It's not just in, uh, uh, in Smith's. This is what I was saying at the beginning. You can read uh, current literature as well as uh, uh, classic texts as complements. Uh, because recent works by Joe Hendrick, for example, on market integration tells you exactly what Smith was telling you in the 18th century. Um, a couple of weeks ago, there was a paper on the Economic Journal uh, by Gustav uh, Erdemann and Esther Echevald Blanco that said exactly the same thing with population in Greenland, um, that the exposure to market increase 
a set of values, a set of uh, characteristics like trust, cooperation, friendship, humanity, that are the things that were suggested uh, without having any proper testing, but just through observation uh, in the 18th century through Smith, uh, for example. So we can conclude that markets and morals kind of complement each other in this in a capitalist society. At least the view that Adam Smith had and some of recent experiments are, are showing, yes. <laughs> Adam Smith didn't directly experience the major economic changes associated with the Industrial Revolution. Back then, Scotland was amongst the most backward societies in Europe. Do you see anything in the work of Adam Smith that may have foreshadowed these major improvements in Great Britain in the late 19th century? And I guess the main question that I'm asking is, what is Adam's views theory on economic development? First of all, I'm going to be picky on one thing that you said. Um, Scotland wasn't a backward country uh, in the 18th century. Uh, maybe the highlands of Scotland, uh, but not the lowlands. So Glasgow and Edinburgh were actually extremely um, active, thriving uh, commercial and intellectual centers. It's not an accident that we call the Scottish Enlightenment the Scottish Enlightenment, right? Uh, because of all the kind of uh, bubbling innovations that uh, intellectual activities as well as economic activities that came out of, uh, uh, of Scotland. Now, how is that possible? Uh, because maybe a century earlier, Scotland was not as developed. Maybe a century earlier was indeed backward, but not in the 18th century. And um, in Smith's account, uh, it is because of the opening up to trade. Uh, so Scotland was unified with England uh, at the beginning of the 18th century, and that allowed Scotland to have access to the colonial market. And then you have huge amount of, uh, of trade uh, that are now open to, to Glasgow, uh, in particular just because of the routes to North America. And, but Scotland opens to trade and grows. Um, that's the main lesson that Smith is telling us as well uh, in terms of development. Once you start to open to trade and uh, you're able to divide labor, the first thing that he tells us in the West of Nations is that the division of labor allows for innovation to emerge. So he may not have had uh, any uh, particular description of what happened in England or in Britain uh, the next century, but that doesn't mean that he, he would not have seen that with the opening up of trade and with increasing commercialization, he would have had more innovation um, and therefore more development. I guess nowadays, the way in which we car characterize economic growth colloquially in modern economics is basically through what we call Smithian growth and Schupeterian growth. The later we associate with productivity gains through innovation. However, the former is mostly through improvements in market exchanges. So by your account, then you will say that there is indeed a theory of innovation within Smith that is different from Schumpeter? Um, there is a theory of innovation in Smith. Um, and it may be different from Schumpeter if the Schumpeterian one is a creative destruction account of, uh, of it. Um, 
but again, like Smith opens up the wealth of nation by telling us that the most important uh, factor for the the creation of wealth is division of labor, and one of the reasons why division of labor is so important for the creation of wealth is because it fosters innovation. So it gives the example of a child that is uh, that is bored uh, in his job and he basically invents a fire truck. Um, so his is uh, uh, opens with that. Um, he continues with this uh, um, analysis of the innovation that that uh, commerce brings about and the division of labor brings about when he attacks uh, all the restriction to labor mobility or in the labor market. Uh, why are they so bad? Among other things because they reduce incentive to produce uh, and they invent the incentive to be creative and have new things, better ways of, uh, of producing. So all the restrictions that you have in the land, for example, uh, are all restriction to, the, um, to innovation. Uh, but think about what he talk, when he talks about banking. Uh, banking in Scotland is an example of a very, very, very innovative um, uh, uh, situation or institutions, uh, the very innovative institution that were created to respond to market conditions. In Scotland, or the Scottish Enlightenment is often considered the age of improvers. And Smith is very much part of that circle of the, uh, of the age of improvers. Um, so the improvers range from like, what kind of crops should I, uh, should I plant? Uh, what kind of sheep should I have? Uh, or what kind of machine are going to help me the most? Uh, what was a friend of his at the University of Glasgow after all? Um, so I think that there is a lot of innovation present in Smith and his, in his theory of division of labor and, uh, and, and, uh, and market conditions. I guess I'm asking all these questions just to talk about what relationship would exist between Smith and what we can now call the Malthusian theory which more or less states that there's really no possibility of economic growth before the Industrial Revolution, at least, where the Malthusian conditions existed. So, Smith sees population as uh, a consequence of growth. So if you have enough demand for labor, you will have enough population growth. So countries that are thriving are countries that have an increase in, popu increase in population. And countries that are stagnant are countries with stagnant population. Countries that are declining are countries with declining population. And he gives examples of North American colony for the thriving one, of China for the stagnant one, and Bengal for the declining one. Um, what causes this difference in, uh, in uh, economic condition? mostly for, for Smith, is the labor market's restrictions. So in North American colonies, um, is it's much um, easier to have competitive markets for labor, uh, mostly because of the amount of labor demanded, uh, given the size of, of the colonies, 
um, the lack of primogeniture, which means that the lack of restriction in the possibility to own land. Um, so there is much more freedom. And what that causes is competition among uh, uh, employers that forces uh, wages to actually grow. And when you have growing wages, you have growing population. In China, on the other hand, the institutions are such that the incentive are for the working uh, people to maintain to, to, to maintain the working people's wages at uh, subsistence, uh, mostly because of the corruption of the, the superiors and the administrations, and therefore the population stays stagnant because the wages are stagnant. In Bengal, because of the corruption and the horrible policies of the East Indian Company, wages are below subsistence, uh, and therefore population is decreasing, and the economy is shrinking. And so he he has a very different um, view compared to Malthus, uh, and he has no problem in saying the population in North American in the North American colonies grow or doubles every 25 years um, because of the, the possibilities that you have uh, given the, the, the high wages in, in the colonies. Going back to what you previously said about the banking situation in Scotland, we usually don't associate Adam Smith as kind of an, a monetary economist. But living in the context in which he lived, he got to experience this very unique institutional setting. Could you talk Elaborate more about specifically the Smith's views on money. So we don't talk about Smith as a monetary economist, mostly because the institutional setting is very different from uh, from ours. Um, so as I mentioned before, today we deal with fiat money, we deal with uh, central banking, and we deal with the idea that uh, money supply or changes in money supply may have an effect on uh, on the economy. And um, in in Smith's time, there was no central bank, uh, there was no fiat money. Uh, money was privately issued by banks, so it was a free banking system where money was fully convertible on demand and convertible to gold and silver. So the the situation was very very different. Um, but in general, what he he would suggest is that competition is uh, uh, the best discipline uh, for any markets, including uh, banking. Uh, and it's the best discipline because if you try to overissue, uh, so if you're a bank and you issue too much money, um, you, the money will come back and hunt you. Um, and so it will actually hurt you as opposed to benefit you. So competition is, is what keeps everything in check. Uh, so free banking as with the idea of having multiple and many bank, banks of issue is uh, a system that allows for stability. And the more banks there are, the more stable the system is, as Smith would tell us, um, both because, again, uh, of the stability of the discipline the competition gives, as well as um, uh, because if there is a crisis, a crisis, if a bank does go bankrupt, and Smith says it will, uh, because like things happen, and so you, it is possible for a bank to go back to go to to go um, to go bankrupt. But if that happens, and you have many banks of issue, 
um, the consequences are going to be limited and not global. So by having many banks uh, that compete with each other, you're going to create a system that will not inflate and will be stable over time. Do you see any influence of Adam Smith in the 19th century debates in Great Britain about banking? Because they discuss at length all these things between Ricardo, the Bolognese, the anti bolognese and later on the free banking school, the banking school, and the current school. Do you see influence of Adam Smith there? Um, Smith was, uh, was or the idea of, of free banking, yes, we're, we're, uh, we're very much present uh, in, uh, in those debates. And eventually died out uh, with uh, with the end of the 19th century and early 20th century because they were seen as uh, um, uh, too unstable, uh, and I thought that a central bank would fix the problem and would fix uh, the um, price stability or would generate price stability was uh, was the main idea, and so. Uh, a lot of the crises that were not necessarily caused by uh, banking stability were attributed to the multiplication of banks. Um, and the solution was, let's create a central bank that will solve all the problems. And so that debate sort of died out. Shifting gears towards the esoteric interpretation of Sam Smith. So we all know this famous metaphor about the indivisible hat. But it was firstly introduced by him in a small piece on the history of astronomy. So let me ask you, what is the role of astronomy in Am Smith? Or why did he write about it? What role did astronomy play in Am Smith's work? So this is an example, I think, of the importance of the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. So specialization is great, but you need to trade. Right? And, uh, and so you need to talk to other disciplines. So you, specializing in, in economics is, is fabulous, it gives you a lot of things, but uh, being able to communicate with others uh, will allow you to gain much more. Uh, and that's what Smith did. Like he talked to everybody, he studied as or read as much as, as possible in all sorts of disciplines, um, among which astronomy. And so uh, I think that his studies of astronomy affect him um, in several ways. Uh, first of all, in uh, allowing to think in terms of, again, scientific method. Uh, so how do I handle uh, knowledge uh, and scientific, better understanding? And the way in which he, he understood it or he presented it is that uh, we like to have order around us. We like to see order, at least. And if we don't, we don't, we don't understand what goes on. We are uncomfortable. And so we make connections. So we, we, we see dots and we connect those dots in a way that form a pattern so that we can tell ourselves a story and calm ourselves down. And that's how astronomy started, by connecting dots and with a story that made some sense uh, given what we could see. Um, and we believe that that 
connection of dots actually is the correct one. The problem is that as you keep observing, you start to notice outliers. And if you see more dots that fit your story, that's perfect. But the problem is that you keep observing and you keep seeing dots that don't fit your stories. So you try to make up stories like a little, you know, to adjust your story to fit those dots. But sometimes those dots are just like really bad outside, uh, uh, outliers and the story doesn't fit anymore. And so you have to rethink your story and create a new pattern to connect those dots. And these are how he sees the different theories evolve over time. So there is a theory that fits our knowledge uh, at a certain point, but then we, with observation, we discover this that the theory is no longer working as well, and so we need to develop a new theory. And I think the way in in which we recognize that we connect the dots um, is is believed truth up to a certain point, and then we need to replace it with something that fits better the dots that we have, um, is, a, is a understanding and is a work of humility, uh, in the sense that we, he recognizes that our understanding uh, or our knowledge is an evolving knowledge, and uh, to claim that a model of astronomy or of understanding of any other uh, subject um, will change over time. And so what we believe true today may not be believed true uh, in a hundred years or a thousand years. Um, and that humility is also present in his more of psychology because um, by in the same process of understanding that the earth is not the center of the universe, uh, we also realize that we as human beings are not the center of the universe, and I am not the center of the universe. So it's, it's, it goes all the way down to the single individuals who think to be the center of the universe, and then by interacting with others, you realize, well, maybe I'm not the center of the universe. We as human beings think to be the center of the universe. And then we realize, well, no, we may not be. Just like the Earth, we thought it was at the center of the universe. And then by changing perspective and by imagining ourselves on the moon, we look down and say, mm, no, not exactly. So I think astronomy may have played a very large role uh, in Smith thinking. I want to end kind of our discussion by briefly touching upon the generalities of studying history of economic thought. We kind of talked at the beginning when you emphasized that maybe this is not a substitute but a complement. However, I would say that maybe at some, at some margin it starts becoming a substitute in the sense that we don't have infinite time. So at what point do we actually need to read, say, Adam Smith, David Hume, or any other scholar compared to, say, a study directly papers that you just referred? Again, I, it's difficult to, uh, to say that they are substitutes for me, at least. I see them as compliments. And, uh, and I'm, I'm going to give you a couple of examples 
to highlight why I think that they are compliments. And they may not be visible compliments, but nevertheless, they are compliments. So like, I think the most striking example is Vernon Smith. Right? So he, he works in experimental economics. He gets some results that he can't figure out how to interpret until he reads Adam Smith. And it's like, ooh, okay, now I have an explanation. Right? So you have modern's technique um, that give you results that you can't quite understand. You go back to, in this case, to Adam Smith, and you find a possible answer that modern economics may not necessarily offer you. Or at least is a different answer that for some is more complete uh, than the one that modern economics may offer you. Another example is Tom Sargent. Sargent studies uh, U.S. debt, has data set with every single uh, debt, every issue in the U.S. from the very beginning. And he looks at the, at in the first few years, there are patterns that he can't understand. So he can't understand why the data behave in a certain way. So what does he do? He starts reading everything that was written on debt in in the U.S. in the seven in in the 18th century. But then he realizes that the people in in, uh, in America were influenced by the people in Europe. So he reads everything that was written in Europe in the in the in the 18th century on debt to understand why the data behave in that funny way. So. Again, they're compliments and <laughs> unnecessary substitutes. <laughs> yeah, there are tools that we need to use in order to achieve our end results. However, I also, I mean, in the same vein, well, alternatively, I would say that what is the benefit of reading Adam Smith compared to, say, reading Hayek, which is also history of economic thought? Or maybe an opposite side, what is the benefit of reading uh, Marx, say? Would you agree that that's also necessary? I mean... All these authors that you mentioned are authors that deal with ideas and do not dismiss the complexity of human beings. So I think that reading any of them will actually benefit a modern economist because it, it complements uh, the theories that we have today which tend to be quite narrow, which again, again are very useful because they give us deep depth that otherwise we may not have. But to understand the human behavior in its fullness, then to read any of these authors from Hayek, Marx, or, or Smith, or Hume, or whomever has a, a big picture of human beings, um, then I think will, will help us because it offers us uh, aspects of human behavior that can sort of put meat on the bones that uh, that are pre presented with uh, uh, with current models. So we have talked about normative assessments of why should we read history of economic thought. Now let me ask your personal opinion on your positive assessment of the way in which we study economics today. Do you think that the future of the history of economic thought as a subdiscipline within economics? is right or do you think that people are really not reading and they will not read anymore um smith in the future i want to be optimistic <laughs> um and so i i want to to be uh thinking that um there there is and there's going to be an increasing realization that uh we can still learn a lot from 
great thinkers, uh, from thinkers that, again, present uh, big ideas, ask big questions. The questions are, are not different from the question that we're asking today, right? I mean, Smith asks, what are the causes and nature of the wealth of nations? Those are questions that we ask today as well. Like, what, what causes development? So the questions are the same. And we can still learn from uh, from answers that were presented before because they may have a different cut, right? Um, so that differentiation in uh, in the approach or in the in the aspect that you focus on may still offer something for us. So I'm I'm, I'm optimistic about uh, about the future. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Maria. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure indeed. <laughs> Standing on the shoulder of giants is a metaphor that illustrates the historical and social backdrop of human knowledge. What we set to gain by reading the giant scholars of the past, however, remains a heavily controversial topic in light of our more positivist understanding of science. We can discuss the trade-offs, but we cannot obviate the fact that reading scholars like Adam Smith still remains enlightening and useful. Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at Penn underscore exchange. Stay tuned.